0: You're listening to the Evanston Bible Fellowship Podcast. EBF is a community of sojourners empowering one another to cultivate gospel transformation. To learn more about our church, visit ebfchurch.org. This morning's passage is 1 Peter 2. 13 to 17. Submit yourselves to the Lord, or submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated.
1: Thank you, Eileen. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you here on the Lord's Day. And I just got to get the, uh, you know, address the elephant in the room. We did not, like, choose this passage because it's the 4th of July. So might as well just say that right now. This is where we are in the book of First Peter together. But I believe that it is of God that, um, that today we consider how Christians are to relate to our to the governing authorities. Uh, but for those that may not know me, my name is Tim. I serve here as lead pastor. Greetings to all that are gathered here, to those that are joining uh, on our live stream as well. It is good to be with you. Um, and uh, thank you to, was it, was it Sam that drew in my book here this morning? Oh, so thanks to my three-year-old Sam for doodling in the first page of my sermon here. But uh, awesome stuff. You know, um, what, as I mentioned, we um, are been going through a series here at EBF called "Sojourners and Exiles," going through the, the book of First Peter together. And as we saw in last week's passage, in verses eleven through twelve, we learned that as foreigners and exiles, we must abstain from sinful desires and maintain godly lives, so that Jesus is displayed, and that God gets all the glory. Well, in the very first application of this, what it means to live godly lives, Peter goes next for how Christians should relate to governing authorities. And so that's what we discover here, and that's what we're going to be going through together here in in verses 13 to 17. But would you pray with me before we dive into God's word together? Our Father, we thank you for your word. How it speaks today. Would you use it, Lord, to challenge us, to motivate us, to help us better grasp the heights and depths of your love for us, Lord, to be reminded of our primary duty, that is of fearing and of and worshiping you, our great God and King. Would you help us to grapple with what can be a hard word for us to hear? Holy Spirit, would you illumine your word and help us to and lead us into all truth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. How should Christians relate to the government? What should Christian engagement look like in the public square? How or what should perhaps our posture be toward governing authorities at different levels even? These are age-old questions that Christians have wrestled with over the ages and have often answered in very different ways. For some Christians, perhaps there's been a tendency to cozy up to the state. Can I say that? To cozy up to the state. Perhaps blending elements of faith with patriotism in what can be known as civil religion, for instance. And I think part of that is how a good thing, like patriotism in moderation, the danger is that it can become the ultimate thing in nothing short, what is nothing short of idolatry. Other Christians have answered this question perhaps by um, maybe an approach of ambivalence or one of um, maybe distancing themselves from the public square, maybe even prayerlessness when it comes to these things still others have perhaps pinned all of their I shouldn't say all their hope but pinned what they think the solution is on if we just elect the right leaders and that becomes almost the extent of their involvement you know I've had to come to terms in some ways with my own background my own upbringing I don't know um, what your story is necessarily. I'd love to hear more of your story and I think our ethos communities are a great place to, to share our, the journeys that we've been on. But as it relates to life in the public square, my own life has had some interesting twists and turns. One is, can I just lay this out there? I guess. but uh, One is being a part of a, a Christian school growing up where the pledge of allegiance and the pledge to the Christian flag—did you know that that exists? There's a pledge to the Christian flag. Were recited together, and that was very formative. Things like that were very formative to me at a younger age. I, when I got into uh, college, I was a political science major. Ja, what, what? That's right, <laughs> political science. We gotta stick together. There's so many scientists among us, and. I married a math teacher, you know, so. And among other things, I did, I helped with campaign work. Um, and, uh, you know, mock trial, for instance. Um, that's a whole another story, anyway. Of course, you know a little bit about my background in terms of, uh, in terms of being in the Army. And uh, one of the things I really wrestled with was, um, I'll just share this briefly, but one of the things I really wrestled with was... Um, coming home and being at my home church and one of the practices that my home church had was I think it was even on the fourth of July it was inviting service members to wear their uniforms and to come up to the front and line the platform and represent the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, and the Marine Corps and I came to understand you know the heart, part of the sentiment behind that was seeking to to honor service members and I thought that that was that that was, uh, that was commendable but then I got to serve on staff at that church, kind of like in a um, as a college ministry intern, and got to share kind of my insider-outsider perspective and saying, like, you know, this really is prickly to me. I feel the tension here of what of kind of our our dual citizenship, if you will, that our primary allegiance is to God and His kingdom. And I understand the church's heart to honor service members, but, but this just doesn't sit. Right. So got got to share that kind of among staff, and they were floored. It was kind of like this: we've it was almost like a, we've always done it this way, kind of thing, you know. Um, one other thing I might mention, in just the the steps that God has had me in over over the years, is really resonating with a recent article by Tim Keller on how historical Christian positions on social issues don't necessarily match up with contemporary political alignments. That had a lot of explanatory power for me. So those are just a couple of things that I share and maybe perhaps the journey that God has had me on. But I'm curious what your, what your um, journey has been as well. But more importantly, I, my concern is that we ground ourselves in what the Bible has to say about these things. And that is my heart. Today, you know, we're going to address some of these questions I believe it is crucial that we view our civic engagement through gospel lenses. We're not going to answer all these questions exhaustively this morning, but my heart is that in hearing how first Peter in hearing first Peter how Peter helps us grapple with these things, it will help us as we grapple with what can be a very a very difficult concept, a very difficult thing to navigate. I have to admit, and you probably sensed this even as, as Eileen read the passage, these are some difficult words, and the tendency is to want to perhaps qualify them right off the bat or to maybe um, to soften the edges somewhat, but my heart is that we will grow in our awareness of what Peter intended among his first century listeners to help us then bridge the gap into the 21st century and what, this, what the implications are for us today. So I, I know just at the outset I'm not going to get it all right. <laughs> I invite your, your prayer, your grace in addressing these matters, entering into dialogue even, as we recognize that there may be even a spectrum of views represented in our, in our own congregation. But here, even as we're reminded in First Peter, we are to love the family of believers. You know, the bottom line is this. While our ultimate allegiance is to Christ and his kingdom, How we live in our current socio-political setting matters. It matters to God. It matters to our fellow image bearers. And it influences how others view God and Christianity. In our time together this morning, we're going to address how Peter urges Christians to relate to governing authorities. We're going to ask some key questions. And the first is this. What? is it that Peter gives as his main exhortation? We see that in verse 13. It starts off in this way. Submit yourselves, for the Lord's sake, to every human authority. Look back at those verses 11 and 12 that I mentioned earlier. It says this, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Followers of Jesus Christ are foreigners and exiles. We have been given new birth from within our particular culture and context, but our primary citizenship now rests in the kingdom of God. Philippians 3.20 reminds us that our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter wants to show that part of what it means to both abstain from sinful desires and to live godly lives is to submit to governing authorities, submit to human authorities. The word for submit here means to order oneself under, or in this case, to live according to the governmental order. But the phrase to every human authority is actually, it could be rendered literally to every human creature. So even within this context, Peter's clearly talking about those in authority, but it's a reminder that even rulers are merely creatures who have been created by God and exist under his lordship, exist under his rule. This, right off the bat, would have flown in the face of the Roman imperial cult, those who revered Caesar as a god. So, the, first of all, the command is to, to submit to human authorities. But who are the human authorities that Peter is talking about? Well, look on at verses the rest of verses 13 and 14. Whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do Right? The human authorities that Peter has in mind here are the emperor and his governors. The word here that is emperor is more commonly, it means king. But the king that they would have known essentially at this time was the Roman emperor. And any idea who was most likely the emperor when this was written? Nero. That's right, Nero. Nero reigned from AD 54 to 68. Later he would lead a terrible persecution against against Christians that would lead even to Peter's death. Peter urges Christians to be subject to human authorities, even one as cruel and tyrannical as Nero. The word translated governors here is used of Pontius Pilate. In Matthew 27, it would have included both legates and proconsuls. Legates governed imperial provinces as representatives of the emperor, and then proconsuls governed senatorial provinces. These are representatives that govern, really, came to govern what was most of the Roman Empire. So governors were sent by or commissioned by the emperor and were expected to carry out justice. Well, according to Peter, they punish those who do wrong. And this involves not just deterring evil, but carrying out retribution against those who do evil. And in contrast, they praise or reward those who do good and encourage more good behavior. You know, most of us today may not be as familiar with a government praising those who do good. It's almost like that, that's what's expe- expected in some ways. I don't know. But the, Roman, the Romans recognized those who contributed significantly to the community through things like um, statues that were put up or extending certain privileges as well as commending them in in other ways, too. So some ways we might see something like that today would be like in the, the presenting of the Presidential Medal of Freedom, in the renaming of a street in someone's honor, or perhaps in a proclamation or a plaque that is designated for them. But while there were many, or there were at least some wealthy benefactors within the church, Peter addresses the entire assembly, and as we're we're going to see, that includes slaves, that includes women who are most likely married to unbelieving spouses. And his main concern, though, seems to be that all believers should do what is right to be a part of strengthening the social fabric of society, strengthening the social fabric. So now that we've answered who, what about the why? Why should Christians submit Verse 15, for it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Peter gives the basis for submitting to human authorities here, but actually there's a more important sign that's back in verse 13 when we find the phrase, for the Lord's sake. Peter often uses that word Lord to refer to the Lord Jesus Christ. And their submission is not to be a mindless submission or a blind submission or one that is a submission regardless of what it is that is commanded to them. No, they are to obey governing authorities because of their reverence for and submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. And by implication, if there are commands that violate the Lord's will for the Lord's sake, they are to be resisted. Then in verse 15 here, we are given a window into God's will when it says... Actually, there are echoes of verse 12 that says, live such good lives among the pagans that they accuse you of doing wrong. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. You know, there, there were many misconceptions about Christianity early on. The Romans were very suspicious of minority religions that did not assimilate to Roman values. And as a result, many false charges were often brought up regarding Christians. But doing good here is probably more than just private good deeds. More likely, this included deeds that society would recognize as good. So things like philanthropy or civic engagement, acts of compassion. And Peter wanted his readers to understand that their godly lives would silence the false charges against them and extinguish the criticisms of those who reviled them. We'll look at this a little bit more later on, but... Now that we understand more of the why, what about the how? How are Christians to submit? Verse 16 says this. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. This verse is closely coupled with that main command there in verse 13. So it almost reads like, submit as free people, not abusing your freedom, but as servants of God. Christians are people who are free. Scripture outlines the great freedoms Christians have, freedom from the impossible demands of being perfect, freedom from guilt and shame, freedom from the destructive power of sin. But that doesn't mean we are free to do whatever we want, and that's what I believe Peter is getting at here. Freedom in Scripture is not a license to sin, but a devotion to God. Peter's concern was that the believers not use their freedom, their freedom from human authorities as an excuse to live in, in in anarchy or chaos. That would only hurt the church, especially in its infant stage as a church, and give more people reason to undermine it or reason to persecute it. As free Christians, then, they are to submit to human authorities by recognizing their, their God-given purpose and engaging in acts of compassion, acts of, of goodness. Christians, Peter goes on to say, are free to live as God's slaves. The word for slaves here could me, more accurately be translated bond servants. and although we don't necessarily use that term as much today, it has its background in the Old Testament where several giants of the faith, giants like Moses and David and Elijah are called servants of the Lord, servants of the Lord. Romans 6.22 says this, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. True freedom comes from submitting to God. True freedom comes in submitting to God as obedient servants. In light of all this, what is it that should be our priorities? And that's where Peter goes in the final verse verse 17 show proper respect to everyone love the family of believers fear god and honor the emperor These are like four tightly woven commands that he gives here honor actually that that phrase show proper respect to everyone is the same word for honor later in the text so honor everyone love the family of believers fear god honor the emperor How do these relate to one another? Karen Jobes suggests that this statement is a kind of a comprehensive reference to all contexts in which a Christian lives. So the social, the ecclesial, the spiritual, and political. Christians must live well by giving each type of relationship its due. So socially, they are to honor everyone. This means treating every person with with dignity and respect that should be extended to them by being image bearers, bearing the very image of God. Ecclesially, they are to love the family of believers. Spiritually, they are to fear God. This should come first and foremost, fear God. And politically, they are to honor the emperor. Notice that only God is to be revered. But the emperor is to be honored. Ironically, honor is the same term used for how they are to treat all people, yet another undermining of this notion of emperor worship. Here's a big big question, I think, for us to wrestle with today, is how, then, can Christians apply this text? What does this mean, especially navigating the challenge of moving from the first century context into the 21st? I think that there are some important principles that we can can glean from this passage. First of all, is that part of living godly lives includes how we relate to governing authorities. Second, the call to submit is not based on the authority of the office or the charisma of a leader, but for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. This extends to various levels of government. Christians are called to be good citizens because of our obedience to the Lord, not because of our obedience to the state. Third, what happens when the government demands something that a Christian cannot do in good conscience? Submitting does not mean obeying even if we are told to do something sinful. And there are solid biblical examples that resonate with this. In the book of Exodus, for instance, we're given that story of how Pharaoh ordered the Hebrew midwives, to kill baby boys, but let the baby girls live. And in Exodus 1.17, it says, the midwives, however, feared God. Interesting. They feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. They understood that the duty to preserve innocent human life trumped Pharaoh's command. There's another great example in the book of Daniel. The I think this is one that our children's ministry did not too long ago, but the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar set up a giant golden image and commanded that everyone fall down and worship it. But three Jews named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down in what was an act of civil disobedience. You see, they recognized the second commandment to not bow down to and worship idols and realized that this would compromise their faith. You might remember the rest of the story. They were thrown into a red-hot furnace. But God brought them safely through the flames. And the king came to recognize the power of the one true God. Peter, Peter himself, was commanded by the religious leaders not to speak and to teach in Jesus' name. And how did he respond? What does he say? In Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than human beings. We must obey God rather than human beings. And a couple of verses later, in Acts 5.41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. These verses here in 1 Peter should not be used to justify oppression or to undermine people being treated as they should. People should be treated with dignity and respect. When something comes into conflict with our beliefs, we must be willing to go with our primary allegiance, and that is God. God and his kingdom. This takes, admittedly, this takes a great deal of wisdom, and only God can supply the wisdom that we need. Fourth, and coupled with this, is that we are not to take matters into our own hands. Remember that the purpose of civil government is to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. The government is expected to uphold the law and carry out justice when needed. This is not the duty. It is not ours to revenge, as Romans 12 reminds us. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. But when governments fail to punish those who do wrong, they disobey their God-given purpose to keep governments on the right track. Christians, yes, we should pray for the government. We should use the available means to us to to bring about accountability. Remember Peter's own shift in his life, Peter's own shift from pulling out the sword in an act of sedition and cutting off the ear of the guard even as Jesus was arrested. And Peter himself moves from that to sheathing the sword sheathing the sword, putting the sword away. It is also within the realm of Christian freedom to work for the government and to engage in the political process so that the government maintains its God-given purpose. But fifth, our aim should be to do what is right and help strengthen the social fabric. And this is an act, I believe, that challenges stereotypes about Christians along the way. Our conduct especially in the public square, should provide no opportunity for people to slander Christ. More than just being law-abiding citizens, we are to seek the welfare of the city in which God has placed us. Jeremiah 29.7 says, Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Again, Peter was talking about publicly recognized good works that benefited the city. It would be hard to reconcile this teaching with any view or movement that encourages people to to withdraw or to separate from society in some way or to not be engaged in some sort of civic responsibility. I love how Scott McKnight puts this here. I found this really challenging. He, He writes, Peter motivated the churches to good actions in the world so that they would declare forth the good news of God and demonstrate his goodness and glory in the hope that others would want to become Christians. He did not exhort them to do good for some altruistic motive. Far too often, Christians are involved, or at least get involved, to protect their own investments or to accumulate more power for themselves. These are not worthy motives for those of us who claim to follow Jesus Christ and the pattern of the apostles, end quote. Our aim should be to do what is right and to help strengthen the fabric of society. So challenging stereotypes of Christians along the way. Sixth, live as free people. Live as free people. Remember the greater freedom that we have in Christ. We are free because we have been redeemed. But this should not be an excuse for chaos. Submission to the Lord comes first. The state's authority is only secondary. Seventh, maintain the right priorities. Fear God. Love the family of believers. Honor everyone and honor the emperor. Fear God. This comes first. Again, as I mentioned, this is our ultimate allegiance. And he alone is to be revered as holy. He alone is to be worshiped yet we are called also to love the family of believers. This is something we need to be reminded of again and again, especially when we have been in what seems like such a season of lack of love for one another within the body and within the greater church. We have failed to treat one another as, what Peter says here, as a family of believers. You know, we can get so embroiled in politics that we treat Christians that we don't agree with, really, as enemies. But we have infinitely more in common with sisters and brothers on the opposite end of the political spectrum than we do with non-believers that we might line up with politically. We must not give up on family. We must not walk away. Love the family of believers, and yes, honor everyone. Everyone should be extended dignity and worth. Everyone has been made uniquely in the image of God. There are no exceptions to that. That includes those of the other party. That includes, you know, maybe one thing I might mention here is just how much this, you know, these past several years we've seen so much just nastiness and demonizing of people. We should be known as believers of Jesus Christ for our respect and our even handedness when it comes to our engagement in the public square. We ought to be known for our respect even when we disagree. Christians should be courteous and respectful to all people. We need to remember this especially in dealing with those that we might not fully agree with. Chris Gonicon writes this, the definition of what constitutes proper respect will vary from culture to culture and from situation to situation. The principle we need to remember is that our goal is not to antagonize those who despise Christians, but to draw them to Christ. To draw them to Christ. Fear God, love the family of believers, honor everyone, and honor our leaders. Remember that they're only human. Don't fear them, only God. But yes, respect them, even when we disagree. A couple biblical examples of that, Exodus 22, 28 says, do not blaspheme God or curse the ruler of your people. Romans 13, 7 says, give respect and honor to whom it is owed. You know, some of the most disparaging comments I've heard about even the President of the United States have come from, sometimes from people who claim to be Christians. And in fact, it is the lack of respect that often gives Christianity a bad name, which defeats what Peter is trying to accomplish here. That is good conduct that silences slanderers. So let us respect them, and yes, even more so, let us pray for them. Let us pray for them. This is perhaps the most important thing that we can do. And what if we were more prone to pray for our leaders than complain about them? 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3 says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior. Church, here's the bottom line one more time. While our ultimate allegiance is to Christ and his kingdom, how we live in our current socio-political setting matters. It matters to God, who we are called to worship. It matters before our fellow image bearers, those that we are called to honor and to extend the dignity and respect that is due them because they bear the image of God. And it matters and influences how others view God and Christianity. For our hearts should be as... Peter has mentioned just previously that in what we do and how we live, that others would see Christ displayed in our lives and come to glorify God themselves. Our primary citizenship is in God's kingdom, and we look forward to that day when the king will return. In the meantime, we wait as citizens here on earth, and we pray for the courage and the conviction and the wisdom needed to navigate what it means to live between two worlds. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. And we thank you, Lord, that we can gather here freely this morning to worship you and to hear from your word. We praise you, O Lord, for the greater freedom that we have through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and what he has done in willingly giving himself in love we thank you, Lord, for that freedom. We pray that you would help us to live as free people in the freedom that you give. Father, we do pray for our leaders. We pray for President Biden. We pray for Governor Pritzker. We pray for Mayor, Mayor Biss, Lord. We pray that you would give them the wisdom that they need. Father, that you would even draw them to yourself. You would help them to make good and godly decisions. Lord, I pray that you would help us amidst the challenges that we face navigating our dual citizenship, living between these two worlds, Lord. We ask for your wisdom. We ask for your guidance. Knowing that you are good, you are holy, you alone are to be revered. We pray this. In Jesus' precious, matchless name, amen. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's message. To hear more messages from EBF, subscribe to our podcast. And to find out how to get connected with our church, visit ebfchurch.org.